My name is Alan Meese. I'm the co-director of the Center for the Study of Law and Markets. Uh, my co-director, Nate Oman, is also here as well. Just like to welcome you to today's event. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day uh, for coming. Uh, I would also like to take a second to welcome and recognize uh, Laura Holmes-Jost, who is a uh, generous supporter of our center, and, and thank her for uh, coming and, and, and participating today uh, as well. Hi, Laura. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Today we have a very special lecturer, uh, Professor Bruce Caldwell from Duke University. Uh, Bruce is a graduate of the College of William and Mary. Um, I won't say when, uh, where he did his, his, his undergraduate work in economics. Um, he also has a PhD in economics from University of North Carolina. He is a research professor of economics at Duke University, where he's also the director of the History of Political Economy Center there. Um, he is a leading economics historian. He's the author or editor of about 10 books and dozens of articles uh, on economic history uh, of, of ver in various eras. Um, it would take too long for me to describe all of his contributions, but uh, he is certainly a leading economic historian and in particular uh, with a focus on, on Friedrich Hayek. And I think it's, it's safe to say he's a leading expert on, on Hayek and his work, his influence and, and the origin of his ideas. So. Um, with that, I would like to turn it over to Professor Caldwell. I'll uh, just ask everybody to mute themselves. Uh, uh, and at the end of his talk, uh, we will, um, uh, I will, I will uh, take questions um, as kind of a referee. Um, so raise your hand if you wanna be called on and I will uh, recognize you and you can ask your question. So again, thank you. Without further ado, Professor Caldwell. Okay. Well, Alan, thank you uh, so much for uh, your introduction and for the invitation to come back to William & Mary. I really wish I was there in person. Um, I waved to Will Hausman, who was a colleague of mine when I was at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, and uh, it's good to, see, good to see you again too, Will. So yes, my, 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 uh, my brief here is to talk about uh, Friedrich Hayek. And uh, Hayek was a, a, an economist. Uh, I think you've gotten a, a handout uh, a sheet of paper that may be two-sided or two single sheets, but I'm going to kind of follow that because uh, what I'd like to do is first talk a little bit about his uh, about his life and then about some of his intellectual contributions and his defense of liberalism. Of course, uh, I don't know if you can hear it, but right now uh, the people outside my, my window uh, have decided to turn on their blowers because they're doing yard work. Uh, this is, I'm at the university. So I apologize if it's interfering. If it's not, forget I forget I mentioned it. Okay, that sounds great. Um, okay, so um, I got interested in Hayek uh, as an as an historian of economic thought because his was a 20th century life, and I was interested in the development of how or how economics developed in the 20th century. And uh, indeed, he's actually kind of a perfect vehicle for studying that. Because, uh, as we'll see as I go through his chronology, uh, he managed to be in the right place at the right time in terms of his interaction with lots of other uh, famous uh, or influential uh, economists in the 20th century. And often he was fighting with them. So right place, right time with the wrong ideas, at least that would be, that would be the perception of the people who, who were challenging him. And his reaction was uh, uh, to sail right through and try to figure out how, ways to convince them that he was right and they were wrong. So he's a, he's a very good figure for looking at the development of, of economics in, in the 20th century. So I'll just walk through the, the, the life, uh, emphasizing some of those things, and then we'll turn to the second uh, sheet and take a look at some of his contributions. 
Um, so he was born in, in Fin de Siècle, Vienna in 1899. It was a period of great cultural, intellectual, uh, aesthetic uh, uh, ferment and creativity. Uh, he came from a family mostly of, of natural scientists. Uh, he was very deeply involved in his father's botany uh, 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 programs of various sorts. He had an herbarium. He also had people over to the house every couple of weeks to as, as, as a club. And he's part of the kind of the intellectual uh, uh, upper class, as it were, of, of, of Vienna. He has a Vaughn in his name. They weren't that rich, okay? Uh, he was much more of an intellectual elite rather than a, a, mon a financial elite that he, was, that he was living in. So he fought in World War I. He enters the University of Vienna, where in order to study economics, you actually get a law degree. So he was trained as a lawyer, uh, got a second degree in economics uh, after that. Um, he, uh, he formed a, a discussion group. This is a typically Viennese sort of thing where you get together in someone's house every couple of weeks and you deliver a paper, uh, you talk about something of interest to you. Usually there is a paper involved with it. And then everyone uh, uh, criticizes or asks about the paper. And it was actually a fairly uh, rigorous sort of thing. And one of the things that often happened is you'd give a paper outside your area of expertise. So it really was a way to kind of uh, train the mind as well as engage with, with friends. Um, he, uh, he goes to the United States uh, for about a 15 month period, spends most of his time in New York. Um, he meets there Wesley Clare Mitchell. So people who are studying as lawyers probably have not not necessarily going to know all of these names, but yeah, he was in that discussion group with people like Oscar Morgenstern, who, who was one of the developers of game theory. Uh, Gottfried Habler was a famous international economist. Wesley Clare Mitchell was one of the founders of American institutionalism, uh, indigenous American uh, take on, on, on economics. So he took a class from him. And interestingly, Mitchell uh, was uh, uh, institutionalism was a, a variety of, of economic thought that Hayek disagreed with. And in taking that class, what he would have what would have struck him was how similar it was to the ideas of the German historical school, who were the was the nemesis of the of the Austrian school of economics. So he's he's seeing this person who's kind of at the at, at the top of the American economics profession, uh, mouthing ideas that he thought were wrong and passe. And yet they're reviewed as avant-garde in the United States. So this, this will become interesting later uh, when he gets to World War II and his projects that he's undertaking there. Anyway, he gets back to Vienna. He gets married. He's, he's working at a business cycle institute, which is in and of itself bizarre because of the limitations of uh, empirical economics that is, is one of the uh, uh, bylines of the Austrian uh, viewpoint. Uh, doesn't really believe you can make predictions, and yet he was called to make forecasts uh, at this Business Cycle Institute. And then he gets invited to England uh, to give some lectures, uh, four lectures called Prices and Production. On the basis of those lectures, he gets invited uh, to come to England uh, as a professor, uh, visiting professor initially, and then after a year, they make him a, a, a give him a, a chaired position. Uh, it was on that first uh, preliminary visit uh, that he in, gets to meet Lionel Robbins. Robbins says, look, Keynes has written this book, a treatise on money. Why don't you review it for our LSE House Journal? And uh, it was that review of Keynes, a treatise on money, that is the great Keynes-Hayek battle that you, if you 
watch rap videos, you can, you can get instances of that. There, there's all sorts of uh, accounts of it. I'll talk a little bit about it later, but not, not too much. But that was his initial introduction into the academia of, of, of London in 1931. Um, he joins the faculty uh, of economics uh, in, uh, at the London School of Economics. And these are the years of high theory. That's the way George Shackle described them later. Basically, if, if you've taken an intermediate microeconomics course, a lot of the graphs and formalism underlying the graphs was then being developed in this grand seminar at LSE that Hayek, uh, interestingly, because the Austrians come from a verbal tradition, but Hayek and, and Robbins and a number of other famous economists, John Hicks, uh, just a, a raft of, of, of famous economists, are all uh, kind of building up this, this theoretical apparatus. So he's witnessing the creation of economics uh, uh, of the type that we know now, as opposed to the verbal traditions that were uh, current then uh, while he's at LSE. And he's engaging in these debates, as I said, one with Keynes. I'll talk a little bit more about the one on socialist calculation. He, he was debating capital theory with Frank Knight, a famous American economist. So he was, he was right in the thick of things in terms of how best to understand economic phenomena from a theoretical perspective. When World War II begins in 1939, LSE gets evacuated to Cambridge. So he spends uh, the war uh, most of the time in the war in Cambridge. It was at this point that he starts uh, moving away from economics and, and, and starting to write on uh, different topics, basically a defense of liberalism and a critique of socialism through the broader society. And I'll, I'll spend a bit of time talking about that later, so I won't, won't say much more about it now. One thing to note, though, is that one byproduct of this, of this grand project that he undertook then was a little book called The Road to Serfdom, which ends up being probably his most famous work uh, and, and certainly most, most uh, misunderstood, I would say. Uh, I, I did send Alan a, a link to a podcast where I had a recent paper uh, about uh, uh, reading The Road to Serfdom After 75 Years and how it's been misread, both by people who claim to be Hayekians and, and, and those who, who are opponents of Hayek. So, uh, if you're interested in, in that particular episode, that podcast, I think will will capture uh, uh, that quite a bit. He found he founds uh, right after the war the Mont Pelerin Society, and I'll, I'll say more about that in a bit too. But he's uh, in 1950 he moves to the University of Chicago, and he's there uh, when the Chicago School of Economics really gets its start. And some people have argued that he was actually instrumental in in helping create. The Chicago School of Economics, because he was important in bringing Aaron Director, Milton Friedman's brother-in-law, uh, to to Chicago at the time. So, if you're if you're following the the tradition of uh, the 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 trajectory of my talk, yeah, he, he goes to England when Keynes is is getting ready to write the general theory. Um, uh, he's engaging with uh, lots of people at London School of Economics as uh, mainstream economics, the micro uh, variety is being formed. He goes to Chicago when the Chicago School of Economics is being formed. So he's he's always right right at the right point. Um, he's there, no, not at the economics department, but on the Committee on Social Thought. And it's at this point that he really starts to broaden out uh, his uh, uh, the sorts of topics that he becomes interested in writing about. He has a book on psychology uh, published in 1952, and he's moving much more into political uh, theory, 
uh, and the defense of liberalism. So the biggest book coming out of the Chicago period was the Constitution of Liberty. For the last 30 years of his life, he spends it back on the continent uh, for a long time at Freiburg. He spends a disastrous uh, a period in Salzburg. He's originally from Austria, thought he should try to move back to Austria, and the Salzburg experience just was, was not good. He, he, didn't, he, he didn't even have an economics department. He didn't have students there. He went there not realizing that he was going into a situation where he wouldn't actually have students. So he goes back to Freiburg, and that's, uh, that's where he ends up spending the rest of his life. He did get the Nobel Prize in 1974. Ironically, he shared it with Gunnar Myrdal, who is basically a social democrat, certainly earlier, perhaps even a socialist. It depends on how you how you define those terms. Uh, they knew each other since the 30s and always disliked each other. And uh, so it, it, both of them were, were unhappy with the, uh, with the uh, award of the award to the other. <laughs> Uh, and and made it known actually after well, there's the the, the I'm, I'm actually doing a full biography of Hayek's which looks at not just his intellectual contributions but also his institu institutional contributions like founding something like the Mont Pelerin Society and his interaction with with various sorts of foundations um, but in addition his personal life and and personal elements of his professional life so we've been given access to all of his correspondence and all of the rest. And it's been a really insightful uh, uh, journey uh, in working on this biography because you know, all my life I've, I've looked at ideas and now you're looking at the people behind the ideas. So let's, uh, let's turn to the ideas now. This would be to the, uh, to the second uh, uh, part of your, of your handout. And so his early work you can see at the top of the handout, model of a capital using monetary economy. And some of the titles there, monetary theory in the trade cycle, prices and production, culminating in this book that took him seven years to write that was just impenetrable, uh, the pure theory of capital. So his, his early contributions were all in, in Austrian business cycle theory and theory of money. And I, I don't wanna go into detail there because a lot of this stuff is, is mostly of antiquarian, uh, interest rather than uh, interest of, uh, uh, of current, you know, the connections to modern macro are not uh, particularly strong. But I will just mention a few insights that, that I think are lasting. And, and indeed, during the 2008 um, downturn, I was getting phone calls from journalists uh, at Wall Street Journal people. Yeah, what's this Austrian business cycle theory? They wanted to know more about it. So it, at least it, it resonated a little bit. Uh, uh, during periods of, of, of financial crisis. So one of, the, one of the insights is that the interest rate is, uh, is a price. It's a price that coordinates intertemporal consumption and investment decisions, and that it's just like other prices in the price system. You want it to be able to reflect um, relative scarcities in various areas. So you want it to be able to move up and down as, as indicating changes in savings uh, and, and investment preferences. Um, he worried about uh, aggregates, aggregate approaches that would not uh, emphasize the changes in relative prices. So the idea of, an, uh, of a price index measuring inflation as one of the targets for policy was something that he thought was, uh, was wrongheaded, uh, liable to lead you into, into erroneous policies or policies that would make things worse rather than better. Um, he saw money as a loose joint. So a lot of people who are critics of Hayek one of the standard criticisms is, well, he's a market fundamentalist. He thinks nothing can go wrong. And geez, look, 
you know, you've got this crisis in 2008, a financial crisis, but he's just a Pollyanna about this. Well, look at his first book, Monetary Theory in the Trade Cycle. He emphasized that, in fact, uh, business cycles exist, and he saw money as, a, as, as the loose joint. His phrase was money is a loose joint. You can have a, a, a market system that's working very well, but if monetary institutions are not uh, in place uh, and that money is not stable, you can get all sorts of problems uh, arising in the market system. Uh, and he, in fact, used the phrase that is now starting, starting to get some currency among policymakers, again, interestingly, the way things come and go, of neutral money that what you want to do is keep money neutral. And if money is neutral, kept neutral, now, what does that mean? Good question. That's a good question. Uh, and he wasn't able to answer it operationally, uh, and which is one reason why you know, it, it, it didn't, it, this particular approach didn't go very far. But he said, if, 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 you if you obtain that theoretical ideal, then the system works actually very, very well. Okay, now, There are problems with the system, but in terms of allocating goods, resources efficiently, uh, that it can work very well. So I'll, I'll leave aside his, his, uh, his monetary writings. Uh, if people want to return to that, uh, happy to do it during the Q&A. The next heading is works on socialism and knowledge. And I'm linking together there. He's, he, <clears throat> one of his great contributions is what he called was uh, his, his insights into the knowledge problem and the problem that knowledge creates for, for a well-functioning economy. And he links this to his critique of socialism. So let's let's see if I can if I can uh, you know, talk you through that. So socialism is state ownership of the means of production. And he arrives in England in 1931. It's in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, people think that, you know, given the Great Depression, that capitalism has just basically failed. It's a failed system. And the idea is what what should we have to replace it? Uh, you look around the world, you see communism in the Soviet Union. That doesn't look too attractive to most of the uh, most of the British intelligentsia uh, because of the obvious problems with with individual liberty under communism. You've got fascism emerging in various countries: Spain, um, uh, Italy, uh, uh, Germany. Uh, this is unattractive. Uh, now, this is not to say that there wasn't a communist party of Great Britain or a fascist movement in England, but for the great majority of people, none of these were attractive. It looked like capitalism had failed. Uh, socialism was viewed as the middle way. And it was being promoted uh, uh, by uh, people at the London School of Economics, which was founded by Fabian Socialists, uh, the Webbs, uh, founded 1895, uh, but also in the popular press. And uh, so one of the first contributions that he made was to publish an edited volume, uh, Collectivist Economic planning in 1935, in which he reproduced or produced uh, translations of seminal articles that were written in languages other than English that addressed socialist calculation, because there had been a German language calculation debate that his mentor, Ludwig von Mises, had participated in uh, in the early 1920s. And so one of the articles was Mises's article on, on uh, calculation in a socialist commonwealth. Um, and the argument that making there is that, well, if you have state ownership of the means of production, that means you have no, no private firms. And what private firms do, business to business sorts of, of transactions, is they sell inputs. Uh, it, sometimes individuals do, sometimes other firms, but 
uh, factors of production that are used in the production process to create goods. Those goods might be capital goods, they might be consumer goods. And there are prices attached to those factors of production. What do you do in a world where you don't have private firms that are selling these goods? You've got the state making these production decisions. And indeed, Otto Neurath, who was a, uh, 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 basically a, a socialist philosopher who was in the Vienna Circle, had argued for, well, you don't, you don't need money. You don't need private firms. We can just make these decisions according to statistics, based on, based on statistics that we can collect throughout the economy. So Mises was responding to Neurath, but the argument was more general, saying that prices are necessary. Why are prices necessary? Because they reflect relative scarcities. If you're a firm trying to figure out how to produce a good, you're going to have an array of potential factors of production to purchase. They're going to have different prices associated with them. Given your goals, you're going to make a decision about that. Well, if you don't have prices attached to the factors of production, you're much more likely to make inefficient decisions. When I, when I lecture to undergraduates, I say, just imagine, this was an example that had been provided by a guy named Roger Garrison, wonderful, honeyed Southern accent, talking about uh, getting ready for the winter uh, and putting in a, a, a bunch of wood uh, that he's going to be burning in his wood-burning stove all winter long. He says he wants to protect it. And he says, well, you know, that you could have, you could just get a, a, a 50 cent t- plastic sheet that you get at, at Walmart's and put it over uh, the wood pile. Or you, could, or you could get a much more expensive tarp and put it over the wood pile. Or you could actually build a little wood shed that you store your wood in. And you might make it out of plywood, or you might make it out of mahogany, or you might make it out of titanium. You know, at some point you start to say, of course you're not going to make it out of mahogany or titanium. Why is that? Because you know the relative prices of those sorts of materials. You can make it out of anything. But once you have those prices and you understand, you know, what are my needs here? What are my alternate needs that I might use my income for? And you'll allocate according to what these relative prices tell you about the scarcity of goods. So that's just a single decision of some guy trying to figure out how to protect his wood. Imagine trying to do it for an economy as a whole. Well, it doesn't work very well. Um, This was his argument that you're going to have vast inefficiencies in production if you do that. So bringing that argument to the table was what Hayek was doing initially with this book. But there were lots of socialists in England who were responding and saying, look, there was, a, there was indeed a, one of his colleagues had a class on how to run a socialist economy. Okay, So they're arguing back at him saying, look, uh, there's different sorts of ways to do it. Some of them were enamored of general equilibrium theory. And you can imagine the metaphor that they were using. It said, look, what general equilibrium proves to us is that these allocation decisions have to be made no matter what the legal setup uh, under under a free market system, lots of decisions are made by entrepreneurs. Under a socialist system, they'd be made by socialist managers. Uh, uh, the, the types of decisions that get made, uh, I think, can be made better by socialist managers because they'll have information coming from on high about all of the things that need to be produced. So that was one argument that was being made. A second one was, was that we can actually use a modified price system, uh, but we yeah, we, prices are just, you know, we attach prices to, to various items. Uh, if, they're, if they're the wrong price, we'll have a shortage. If, we, if, they're the, 
in one direction, or we'll have a surplus in the other, and we'll just adjust them up and down. And a lot of times in making these arguments, what was being invoked was that theory that Hayek and his colleagues were developing in the 1930s, kind of the, 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 the standard microeconomic theory that looks at a representative firm, its decisions about quantities and, and, and input decisions, et cetera. And so what they could say is, look, we'll just direct our socialist managers to price at marginal cost, okay? To replicate the efficiency characteristics of, of a market system. We'll tell, we'll tell the industry managers to produce that quantity that would get them to the minimum point on the long run average total cost curve, okay? We'll just we'll mimic all of the efficiency benefits of a market system, of a free market system that uh, uh, emerges in these models. And because we won't have any kind of uh, 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 monopoly distortions uh, present, uh, to the extent that we have any profits that are generated, we'll just redistribute them as, as part of the social dividend. We'll actually be able to improve on all of them all of the problems that are associated with the market system, uh, but duplicate its efficiency characteristics. That was the argument that was being made. And it was in trying to grapple with those um, uh, you know, fairly uh, uh, powerful arguments that Hayek started to look at the, at the theory that was being developed then and saying, what are the assumptions that we're making about knowledge, about the knowledge that the managers might have in making these decisions? He says, and if you look at the theories that we're developing, they're all equilibrium theories. He called them static equilibrium theories. Uh, and it assumes that not only does everyone have full knowledge, but the knowledge is correct, okay? And he says, if you look at the actual world, what you have is lots of people with, with uh, different ideas, different bits of knowledge, okay? So knowledge is dispersed and it's also subjectively held. That is to say, some of the things that people think they know is wrong. Um, and you're living in a world where you're not moving to equilibrium, but it's a world of constant change, where as soon as somebody develops a new process, they introduce it in a market that has a ripple effect on its competitors. You, know, you can imagine uh, the various uh, scenarios. Okay? So he says well, that if, if the actual world is so different from this world in our models, the question then becomes, how is it that we ever see any kind of coordination at all? How do, how do markets coordinate behavior? If, if we're, by making these assumptions in our models, we're assuming away all the problems that markets actually have to try to uh, uh, solve. He raises that question in a paper called Economics and Knowledge in 1937, which um, Alan asked whether uh, that should be one to assign. I said, not really, because he's really just raising the problem there. The, the, the paper where he comes closest to, to offering an answer to it is the use of knowledge in society, which is the one that that I asked um, um, him to, to ask you to have a look at if you have time. And, and it, he's there saying, okay, if we think about the man, first, first he says, you know, how should we set up the economic system? We can either set it up in a, in a way that, that knowledge is centralized at the top, or we take advantage of the knowledge that is decentralized in lots of people's hands. And, and he said, well, you know, that individual knowledge, the knowledge of the man on the spot, uh, I think is the phrase he uses, the knowledge of time and place, circumstances of time and place. So it'd be great to be able to utilize that knowledge, but the problem is that's very localized knowledge. So a person in that position knows a lot, 
But how does he gain knowledge about what's going on in the rest of the system? That's the real problem. And he says, well, in fact, the price system, when it's well-functioning, provides exactly that knowledge. So what you might imagine is you've, you're an individual decision maker, either as a firm or as a consumer. You know your constraints, your income, your, your whatever revenues are bringing in, the costs that you face, and you make individual decisions. Okay? Those individual decisions are based on the array of prices that you see out there, plus all of your local knowledge. But every individual decision also feeds into that price array that you see. Might affect only small bits, but every person who is acting in a market is, in fact, having some impact on that larger array of prices. It basically is a, is a complex interactive system, <laughs> is what he's describing, where I take the prices as my parameters in making decisions, but all of these billions upon billions of decisions, in fact, are what create that array of prices. And he uses that example of the, of the tin example, uh, and it's become a rather famous example in there. That, you, know, you don't have to know what's causing the price of tin to change. It's just that those who use it in their production or consumption uh, purposes start to economize on tin if the price goes up or find that we can use, they can use more of it if its price goes down. Now, of course, you'd like to know, but he's saying you don't need to know. You don't have to have that knowledge that what the price system when it's well-functioning does is to uh, allow people to utilize their knowledge in ways that uh, uh, satisfies uh, the group as a whole. Okay, so that's his contribution there. And uh, the other paper that I, I, I thought you might want to look at is the meaning of competition. Uh, this was uh, a, a place where he starts to argue about the, the market process as the means by which this knowledge gets conveyed. Again, it's a critique of equilibrium theory and saying the theory of perfect competition is a horrible theory if you're thinking about competition in the actual world. Competition in the real world is rivalrous. You're constantly trying to improve your situation vis-a-vis -vis your competitors, if you're firms, or just in terms of trying to, to maximize your utility as, a, as an individual consumer. And uh, it's a world of constant change, uh, equal, perfect, <laughs> Uh, theories of perfect competition capture none of that, uh, that it's actually the disequilibrium states that, that uh, capture the, the, what's really important when you, when you uh, think about the role of competition in spreading knowledge, in allowing people to gain new knowledge. And one of the reasons that he was reacting to this, by the way, is that uh, he saw kind of the misuse of uh, equilibrium theory by some of the people that he interacted with indeed at, at the London School of Economics. So Lord Caldor, Nicholas Caldor was somebody, who, these two guys, boy, if he didn't like Myrdal, he hated Caldor and Caldor felt the same way. I, I read through all of you know their interviews late in life and they just despised each other, telling all sorts of nasty stories about each other. But anyway, one reason he was, he was upset with Caldor is that Caldor was putting forward at the end of the war, uh, the idea of, uh, of utility production, that perfect competition, is a situation where all resources are used really efficiently, but we don't have that in the real world. So what we want to do is try to duplicate the characteristics of competition in the real world. So let's stand, have the government specify limits on, on the characteristics of consumer goods of a wide variety. And that will try to get us down to, you know, just imperfect competitions where you have variety among goods. Let's have perfect competition where you have standardized goods. So they're drawing all sorts of conclusions that were anathema. Uh, to Hayek in, in terms of, of his, uh, his own views. 
Okay, so I'm going to move away from the economics now and spend the, the remainder of my time talking about his contributions to liberalism and, and, the, and the fight for liberalism in World War II. So I, I'm, these are academic debates that he's having in the 30s. But as the 30s um, uh, went on, he began more and more to see that in the wider society, there was really a great call for socialist planning, that basically this was not something that was limited to academic debates, but was very popular. And there's all sorts of complaints. I mean, you, as I said, you're in the middle of the Great Depression. There was the perception then, as there often is, uh, has been throughout my academic career, that, oh, you've got the... You, Perfect, you know, all sorts of competitions, great, but really we live in a world of cartels and monopolies now. And if you live in a world of cartels and monopolies, you want to encourage them because they're often the least cost producer, but then they have market power and they're going to abuse their market power. So what do we do for that? And a lot of the socialists at that time were saying, well, what easy solution, nationalize it, uh, take the excess profits that they're making, redistribute them as a social dividend, et cetera. There was, uh, as always, complaints about uh, wealth inequalities that were viewed as immoral, that are generated through capitalism. You hear this, uh, you've been hearing this complaint for since uh, since uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street, uh, if not before, but in terms of people who are younger now, I mean, this would be the, the latest iteration of it, but this is an ancient, ancient sort of complaint that, that especially during periods of downturn get raised uh, in discussing free market systems. There were men of science in the 30s. These are, these are, people who called themselves the men of science because they were trying to have the authority of science. Come on, give us the science. This should sound familiar too, okay? If, if you're a scientific expert and they're talking about, well, yeah, science could actually get rid of all of these problems that we've got. We have the technological capabilities producing huge amounts of goods, but this archaic economic system under which we live is, is what's holding up, keeping us back from doing it. We could basically... Uh, uh, get rid of scarcity. It's not too strong of a statement to say that that was what kinds of claims that were being made. If we just uh, have a, a better economic system, and they look to Russia, interestingly, uh, the Soviet Union as a as a model for that, because the the perception was that the Soviet Union this before the the show trials and all the rest of late 30s, but in the early 30s to the mid 30s, great enthusiasm for the Soviet Union in terms of their, their support of science. And we would just put our resources in the same way. We could, have, we could have a much richer society and we could avoid the problems of communism because we're gonna be good social Democrats as a result. So these were the arguments that he was, he was worrying about. It was not so much an academic debate as it was a, a, a kind of the popular vision. And he initially was going to write this big book called, uh, the, it was The Abuse and Decline of Reason. So the abuse of reason project is the way I have it listed in the handout. Um, that that uh, was going to have two volumes. The first volume he was going to trace the history of the ideas of that you can use science to rebuild society. What he called the engineering mentality, sometimes called it scientism. The idea that that uh, we're smart enough to be able to engineer society just like. Uh, uh, engineers engineer a bridge, okay? Uh, we can rebuild it. And he said, where did this idea come from? Because as I said, when he was in America, he saw some of these ideas in Mitchell's class. There were elements of it in the German historical school views. So what he was gonna do in volume one was to trace the movement of these ideas from France through Germany, through England to the United States through time. 
And then he was saying, this is a cautionary tale because the economic setup that one imagines would best be able to accomplish these goals is one that concentrates power in the hands of the government in a way that is dangerous. So the volume two was going to be uh, 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 showing the, the, the bad effects of this supposedly benign movement in the 20th century. He never does the whole big two volume work. And by the way, this is another thing I learned about Hayek. He's constantly starting these huge projects and doesn't finish them or, or finishes only parts of them. But what he does do is, is produce that little book, The Road to Serfdom. And actually, this is a book that, uh, although he started it early in the war, it comes out in 1944 in March in, 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 the, uh, in England and uh, in September of 44 in the United States. There are dozens of books like this at the time. Everyone's saying, look, here's what's going to happen after the World War II is over. Here's the direction society should take. The socialists had their views, and there were a lot of these taking, you know, being published in, in England. So he wanted to, to have kind of a popular, uh, easy to access uh, response to the views that were being put out uh, into the public domain by his socialist antagonists. And that was the road to surf. And as I said, it would, have been, it would have had very little impact. And this is something, by the way, that I also gave Alan a link to the podcast that talks about the road to serfdom. Um, it there was a Reader's Digest condensation that comes out in April 1945. And that's why people now know about the road to serfdom, because 10 million of these uh, go out just as World War II is ending. Uh, servicemen are getting them. Uh, it, yeah, he it, it just it, it suddenly gives him his 15 minutes of fame. It, lots of stories here. But I mean, yeah, the, the classic one is his he was taking a trip to the United States, his second trip to the United States. He was going to go to a few campuses to give some lectures about the road to serfdom. And the Reader's Digest condensation comes out as he's on the boat from England to the United States. He lands in New York, in, in Hoboken, in New York, and um, finds out that the whole tour has been given over to a publicity agency. It ends up being six weeks. He's in a train. Every night he's sleeping on trains, getting up the next morning, giving a lecture in the morning, giving another one in the afternoon, uh, getting on another train. He, it's, it's a whirlwind tour. Um, and that's why people know about the road to serfdom. But anyway, it, it, that, that book was his, his attempt to warn against um, uh, the, the, the dangers of concentrating power in the hands of a small group within the government, which is what you would have uh, he argued, even if it's called a, even if you've got the word democratic in the in the title of the country, uh, you know, if, if all of the decision making power is in the hands of the of the elite in government that has the force of law behind their decisions, uh, you're setting up a dangerous situation. Um, <clears throat> Hayek <clears throat> was promoting liberalism. His book was taken over by conservatives. He has the epilogue of. Constitution of Liberty is why I am not a conservative. So this was not something that made him happy. And um, uh, it was, he, he saw, I think, this effort as not particularly successful. He was hoping to jump into the, into the public sphere and liberalism in the, in the British election in 1945, the Liberal Party was just decimated. They never came back 
That was the end of them. They weren't strong before, but they were gone. So in 1947, he founds this society, the Mont Pelerin Society. Uh, people who are critics of neoliberalism view this as kind of the place where these people all gathered as a cabal in secret to, uh, to, to promote ideas that would then become uh, uh, more important later in the century. Um, so my take on this particular meeting was, yeah, these people, he, he said in doing his various road trips for the road to serfdom, he would meet a few people in each country who thought liberalism might still be a, a, a doctrine that is worth supporting, but it's difficult to have anyone to talk to. So he wanted to have a, a, a place where people could discuss liberal ideas and not have to explain themselves, number one. But he also saw that liberalism was in danger, and he thought that what we need to do is to try to rebuild its foundations, uh, a liberal doctrine that can be uh, expressed by people uh, in good conscience in, in the 20th century. Uh, what are those foundations? We have a bunch of smart people. Let's get them together and see if we can figure it out. So that was that was the idea behind the Mont Pelerin Society. There were early debates within the society of whether they should have some outward-looking face where they're trying to influence policy. He was adamantly opposed to that. He said, look, what we need to do is do the, the hard work of rebuilding the foundations of liberalism. And if you look at the uh, books like The Constitution of Liberty, for which individualism true and false, the other essay that I recommended to Alan uh, is kind of a precursor of, uh, it's, it's trying to think what, are the, what kind of uh, economic, juridical, uh, uh, political institutions would we favor if we were trying to build a liberal utopia. If, if the road to serfdom is a critique of, of the worst uh, kind of nightmare scenario that you can get uh, in a totalitarian socialist system, the Constitution of Liberty is his attempt uh, to offer uh, an answer to that question about what would such a liberal utopia look like. As lawyers, you might be somewhat interested in, 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 in that book or certainly take a look at that, at that piece that I, that I, uh, that I recommended to Alan, but he, basically in the Constitution of Liberty, what he argues is that you want a market system and a democratic polity uh, with strong constitutional protections of a sphere of private uh, activity, private uh, individual activity, uh, defined, enforced, and exchangeable property rights. Uh, these are characteristics. He viewed the rule of law, which he invokes frequently in his writings, as kind of a meta principle. Uh, basically, the idea that, that laws should be uh, stable and prospective, not designed to help some particular individual, equally applied and enforced, very big on general rules. And one of, so people have all sorts of reactions to the Constitution of Liberty. People who define themselves as libertarians generally hate it because he refuses to say, I, I define liberty as an essential value that we must all embrace. And he says, I believe that personally, but I'm not going to argue it in this book because I'm trying to convince my opponents in the book. Okay, so I'm gonna leave that part aside. And what he makes, uh, the one of the arguments that he makes in the book is to say that if we have general rules that are stable and well understood, this is the sort of political arrangement and juridical arrangement that we, that we would want so that people can act on their local knowledge. So if you read the Constitution of Liberty Carefully, you'll see lots and lots of references to allowing people to use their knowledge in ways that are going to benefit society. And that was kind of the way he sets up the argument in Constitution of Liberty. Uh, and he has chapters like, uh, yeah, this allows the creative power of, of a free civilization. 
that indeed, not only are you granting people liberty, which is a value in and of itself, but it allows the production of wealth, uh, a production, you know, best use of our resources as well as, as uh, individual liberty. So he's arguing for it in those ways as well. Now, if you take a look at the rest of the uh, of, of that handout, there's all sorts of other things. I haven't talked about the sensory order. I haven't talked about spontaneous orders, complex uh, adaptive orders, which is one of the ways that he uh, started to describe market systems in his later work. Uh, all of these things are things that I think are, are fascinating and I'm happy to talk about, but I wanted to give you uh, a talk that would uh, respond a little bit to the readings if you're able to look at, at those readings, uh, but and also recognizing that you're, you're law students, so maybe a, a, you know, a little bit at the end there on, on, on his contributions uh, in the Constitution of Liberty.